0: Log Talk Radio.
1: <laughs> Greetings. This is this is Abayomi Azikawe And welcome back to another edition of the Pan African Journal. The Pan African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, December the 16th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the Yemeni resistance enforcement of a blockade against Israeli ports in West Asia. Resistance forces in Iraq and Syria have launched 97 attacks against Pentagon bases attacks on israel from southern lebanon are escalating and the israeli defense forces is losing more soldiers and military equipment in gaza in the second and third hours we listen to a panel discussion of experts from electronic intifada on the current situation in palestine these and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program stay tuned we'll take our um taltoom orchestras film festival Uh, This is a opera entitled El Hab Keda. Let's listen in.
2: but water.
1: Welcome back, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. That was the Om Kaltum Orchestra uh, with the opera entitled El Hob Keda. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Our lead story uh, deals with the ever-increasing and expanding uh, uh, Palestine Solidarity movement uh, that is sweeping the entire globe the, on the African continent in East Africa, uh, Kenyan youth are pushing for a national boycott of Israeli goods as a way to express uh, uh, their outrage over Israel's military assault on Gaza, uh, which uh, occurred uh, after October the seventh. Now several advocacy groups uh, such as Kenyans for Palestine, are spearheading a boycott of companies with ties to Israel by creating educational infographics that list the items that should be avoided. These organizations also made it their mission to advocate for government action against Israel's military operation in Gaza and to increase public awareness of the Palestinian cause. At least 20,000 Palestinians died as a result of Israel's bombings in the past two months. Israel is also accused of targeting schools, refugee camps, houses of worship, and hospitals, as well as depriving Palestinians of necessities like water, food, and fuel. Given the substantial number of Tel Aviv-linked businesses in the East African nation, pro-Palestinian Kenyans are reportedly finding the boycott of Israel goods more difficult than they had anticipated. Israeli-owned businesses own and run the well-known network of coffee shops and casual restaurants called Art Cafe. Sony Holdings, an Israeli business, also runs Westgate Mall, one of the most well-known retail centers in Kenya and in Africa. Kenya also exports agricultural items to Israel, while Nairobi buys chemicals, uh, fertilizer, and other high-tech commodities, according to its embassy in Tel Aviv. In other news, Abu Abeda uh, said that the Israeli army hides the true extent of its losses in the Gaza Strip, vowing to defeat the Israeli invaders. Spokesman for the Al Qassam Brigades, the military wing of the Palestinian resistance movement, Hamas, issued a new statement uh, yesterday. Uh, the statement coincided with two videos produced by brigade military media showing a large number of Israeli military tanks being targeted by Palestinian resistance missiles in various parts of Gaza. Abu Obedi warned uh, the Israeli army of a certain defeat, commended uh, Palestinians on their resistance, and vowed to inflict even heavier damage on invading Israeli forces in Gaza. And if you want to read uh, these articles in their entirety, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Newswire website. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, when Israelis claim that only the only solution to Gaza is displacing the Palestinians, they do not seem to have much knowledge of Gaza's history. That's according to an article by Ramzi Baroud that was published uh, in the Palestine Chronicle. Shortly before Palestinian fighters killed and wounded many Israeli soldiers in the Shijaja neighborhood, East of Gaza City uh, just this last past Tuesday December 12th that very group of soldiers had a meeting at the outskirts of the town a video which circulated widely on social media showed one of the officers later killed vowing to avenge other Israeli soldiers who were killed in that very neighborhood in the 2014 Israeli war on Gaza the Shejiai battle of 2014 uh, is believed to have been the most decisive battle between invading Israeli forces and Palestinian resistance in Israel's so-called Operation Protective Edge. Back then, Israel admitted to the killing of 16 soldiers. Shortly after that speech, the officers who vowed to avenge the dead soldiers of nearly 10 years were themselves the victims of resistance ambushes. Al-Qasim Brigades, the military wing of the Hamas resistance movement, said that the number of Israeli soldiers who have died in three successive ambushes led by the resistance exceeds the number of casualties declared by the Israelis uh, by far. On Wednesday morning, the Israeli army said that eight soldiers, mostly officers, were killed in an ambush in Shejaiya. They included uh, Colonel Isaac Ben Bassat, a Golani Brigade commander, and Lieutenant Colonel Tamer Greenberg, the soldier who was speaking in the video. Later, the Israeli army stated that more dead and scores of wounded were also evacuated from Shijaya. Israeli Chief of Staff Herzl Halevi uh, has described what has taken place in the Shijaya as a difficult event. Later on, an Israeli army spokesman said that they are investigating that difficult event, but investigating may suggest that those soldiers were killed by chance or through some of the kind of miscalculation on the part of the Israeli army. This is unlikely to be the case. According to the Israeli military cited in Al Jazeera, the Israeli army has been fighting the deadly Shijaya brigade for one week and a half and a battle that seems nearly impossible to win. It is impossible to win because of the fighting is taking place in areas that have been completely destroyed and repeatedly so by Israeli airstrikes. No one knows where the fighters come from and where uh, they disappear. The Israeli military has itself reached the conclusion that the Battle of Shijaya cannot be won from the air, meaning through airstrikes. And uh, finally, the Israeli uh, Defense Forces and the Israeli settler colonial state is attempting to utilize starvation as a weapon of war. Now, zero hunger is one of the United Nations sustainable development goals. It's supposed to be reached by 2030. And while the agenda is already at its halfway stage, the achievement of this objective still appears distant. Hunger and malnutrition are major problems in Yemen, South Sudan, Syria, and other countries. In Gaza, Palestinians are experiencing starvation orchestrated by Israel. This starvation is a tool of insidious killing used in addition to the 24-7 bombing. Mass starvation is among the oldest weapons of war. Israel is using it as an act of collective punishment. This starvation is designed to break Gazans, to make them either kneel or starve. Two days after the Hamas-led operation of October the 7th, Yoav Galant, the Israeli defense minister, declared, quote, we are putting a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food. No water, no gas, it is all closed, unquote. Israel, he added, was fighting, quote, human animals, unquote. This campaign was not brand new. Before October 7th, around one-third of Palestinians were food insecure, according to the World Food Program, an agency affiliated with the United Nations. In Gaza, food insecurity was higher than 70%, and 80% of people in Gaza were dependent on aid long before galant announced the complete siege gaza was already blockaded by land sea and air it has been since 2007. in the first three years of the blockade israel estimated the minimum number of calories needed to keep gazans from starvation only that amount of food was allowed to enter gaza under a document called the red lines the policy was so meticulous that the calculation took into account the little amount of food produced within gaza as well as gender and age factors and with that uh, we're going to conclude uh, the pan-african newswire segment uh, of uh, the pan-african journal in concluding this segment of our program we like to remind our listeners that the pan-african newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of african people throughout the continent and the world the press agency was founded in january of 1998 since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website uh, at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for uh, this week. That was the legendary Candy Staten, and, of course, uh, the track is entitled Rock, and you're rocking uh, with the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, December 16th, uh, Heroes Day in the Republic of South Africa, uh, 2023. And uh, we're going to listen to a panel discussion from Electronic Intifada, uh, one of the Primary sources on the actual material situation in uh, the state of Palestine. This is uh, recorded on uh, day 69. Let's listen in.
0: And welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Thursday, December 14th. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to all of our viewers and listeners. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Wynn Stanley, John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 69 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. And first, I wanted to say that we're so grateful to everyone who tuned in on Monday for our show honoring our friend and contributor, Rifat Alarir, and who sent us messages telling us how much they were touched by Rifat's life and work and our celebration of him on Monday's live stream. So thank you. Today, we will take a look at Israel's attempt at crafting an image of victory using the brutal spectacle of mass arrests of civilians, their military's attempt to hide casualty figures from the ground war in Gaza. And we'll break down a number of videos from the resistance showing a completely different picture of the fighting than the one Israel is trying to sell to the world. But first, a brief overview of the news from the ground. The Palestinian Ministry of Health in Gaza has reported that there have been more than 18,600 Palestinians killed and more than 50,000 injured since October 7th, with many more people missing and buried under the rubble, still awaiting rescue or recovery. Yesterday and today, Israeli uh, heavily bombarded uh, from the air, land, and sea across Gaza, especially in Jibalia in the northern Gaza Strip and in Han Yunus in the south. Al Jazeera reported on Wednesday that Israeli forces attacked the Shadia Abu Ghazala school in the northern Gaza Strip where displaced people had taken shelter. Eyewitnesses told Al Jazeera that they had later found their family members dead, shot, quote, execution style by Israeli forces in classrooms. Israeli forces are continuing to bomb, besiege, and destroy hospitals in Gaza, waging what a UN health official called an unrelenting war on the health system across the coastal enclave. Doctors are warning that without an immediate end to Israel's bombing and proper and proper shelter sanitation medicine food and water the healthcare system is coming to a cataclysmic collapse the palestinian health ministry in gaza reported on wednesday that children's vaccines have completely run out which will cause quote catastrophic health repercussions on children's health and the spread of diseases especially among the displaced in overcrowded shelter centers On Wednesday, for the second consecutive day, Israeli troops, accompanied by tanks, raided Kamal Adwan Hospital in Beit Lahya, north of Gaza City, with reports of mass arrests and abuse of people who they have detained, according to the United Nations. Only 11 out of 36 hospitals across Gaza, including only one in the northern area, are partially functional, according to the United Nations, and are being forced to limit their services. Occupancy rates for inpatient departments are at more than 200% capacity, while intensive care units are reporting a staggering 250% capacity. The health system is, quote, on its knees, said the World Health Organization's director last weekend. As Israel continues to massacre Palestinians throughout the Gaza Strip, Israeli troops are being accused of arbitrarily detaining and torturing civilians in the territory. Israel's propaganda organs have attempted to pass off videos and photos of civilian detainees as surrendered Hamas fighters. Three prominent Palestinian organizations have published harrowing testimony from people who were rounded up by Israeli troops in Gaza. The rights groups called for an end to the enforced disappearance of hundreds of Palestinian detainees, including dozens of women, and the immediate revelation of their names and whereabouts. They also demanded an end to, quote, the ongoing torture and abuse of people arbitrarily detained in Gaza. Since October 7th, 43 UN facilities that have been turned into shelters for internally displaced persons have been directly hit, and 60 installations have sustained collateral damage, according to the United Nations Agency for Palestine Refugees. More than 280 people sheltering in UN facilities have been killed, and more than 970 have been injured. Almost 1.9 million people in Gaza, or nearly 85% of the population, are estimated to be internally displaced. Many of them have been displaced multiple times, says the UN. Because of the overcrowded shelters and lack of basic water, food, sanitation, and medicine across Gaza, Doctors are reporting significant increases in communicable diseases and infections, including diarrhea, flu, chickenpox, meningitis, jaundice, impetigo, acute respiratory tract infections, skin infections, and hygiene-related conditions. And hunger is soaring. The World Food Program stated this week that 9 out of 10 Palestinians in the northern Gaza Strip are not eating every day, and that 2 in 3 people in the south, don't have enough to eat either. Videos of Israeli soldiers burning food and water supplies in Shuja'iya, Gaza City, circulated on social media on December 9th. Limited aid distributions continue to take place in the southern Rafa area, where almost half of Gaza's population is now estimated to be residing, the UN said. In the rest of the Gaza Strip, aid distribution has largely stopped due to the intensity of hostilities and restrictions on movement along the main roads, except for limited fuel deliveries to key service providers. In a press briefing in Geneva on Wednesday, the UN's humanitarian coordinator, Lynn Hastings, stated that allowing aid trucks to get to the border between Egypt and Gaza, quote, is insufficient they need to ensure that the conditions inside of Gaza are also such that we will be able to provide assistance to everybody who is in need. Israel, as the occupying power, is responsible to protect the Palestinian civilian population. This means they have to provide for basic needs, Hastings said. Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, A large-scale, lethal Israeli raid on the northern-occupied West Bank city of Jenin and its refugee camp entered its third day on Thursday. In a propaganda release, the Israeli military asserted that it started the raid in the early hours Tuesday, alongside the Shin Bet and other forces working under the command of the Menasha Division, a subgroup of the Israeli army active, uh, active during the First and Second Intifadas that focused on the northern-occupied West Bank cities of Jenin and Tulkarim. At least 10 Palestinians were killed during the Israeli attack, and a number of others were wounded as Israeli forces continued aerial attacks in the Jenin refugee camp destroying infrastructure, and shooting at Palestinians. Israeli forces have raided homes, in some cases using them as military bases, and arrested Palestinians. The Israeli army also besieged the eastern part of the city, blocking entrances and roads with armored vehicles and bulldozers. Four Palestinians were killed when the Israeli army carried out a drone strike in El Sabat neighborhood in the city of Jenin on Tuesday, including a child. Israeli drone strikes in the occupied West Bank have killed 10 Palestinian children in 2023, while Israel has used a U.S.-made Apache helicopter to fire missiles that have killed four children. An Israeli warplane airstrike killed one additional child in the West Bank during that time. Israeli troops besieged the city's three main hospitals, blocking ambulances from reaching them. Israeli forces also impeded the movement of paramedics and carried out full searches of ambulances during the raid on Wednesday. Israeli troops also raided a mosque in Jenin during the campaign, and occupation forces raided the Freedom Theater as well and opened fire. Israeli soldiers destroyed offices, knocking down a wall between an office and the neighbor's home. Quote, for hours, the Israelis sat in the offices as sounds of hammering and shooting could be heard, the theater said. After raiding and causing damage in the theater, the army arrested the artistic director and the producer. As my colleague Tamara Nassar reported, the impunity with which Israel attacks hospitals in the Gaza Strip seems to have set a precedent that extends to the occupied West Bank as well. The Israeli army now routinely hinders Palestinian access to medical facilities and even attacks hospitals during its raids in the West Bank. And now we turn to our show today. We're joined by our frequent live stream contributor, Jawad Omar, an academic and researcher at Birzeit University in the occupied West Bank. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jawad, let's start by having you talk about the mass arrest campaign and the images that have been circulating uh, that are identical to the ones that we've been seeing of Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, who have been stripped and blindfolded and paraded around by Israeli soldiers?
3: I mean, yeah. I mean, there there has been uh, this Israeli yearning, if we want uh, to position it as such, um, to shame Palestinian manhood and masculinity um, through this parading of men um, being semi-naked or mostly naked um, in front of cameras in in uh, in, in a show of uh, Israeli dominance, uh, power over uh, Palestinian masculinity and, and manhood, and I think it it, it, it harkens back um, uh, at, or echoes a a, a heavily, um, you know, an Israeli memory which is, you know, Arab armies kneeling down uh, in the presence of um, um, Israeli military power, which means that you know in in this moment where Uh, October 7th happened as a military offensive campaign by the Palestinian resistance that was very heavily successful, um, where Israelis perceive also Palestinian masculinity being responsible for this uh, um, injury to Israeli pride and power, to its iron wall, um, to its presence. It it, it even discusses out loudly that this is an existential struggle, um, although most people would say this is an exaggeration. Um, that it now needs these images as a sort of respite from the events of October 7th. It needs them as a sort of also message or symbolic message it sends to the Palestinian population, um, specifically in Gaza, but also in the West Bank and the Arab world more broadly, that it still has the power to undress, to disarm, um, to leave Palestinians uh, as vulnerable bodies and to film them um, in in very performative acts of, 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 of dominance and and and, and power etc so I think this is this is one of the elements of the images that we're seeing I think somewhat it backfired um, on Israel um, I think most people did not really appreciate uh, these form this form of propaganda at least outside of Israel itself um, and it, it backfired in ways that they did not perceive um, um to be possible, but at the same time, what was also perhaps uh, more absurd about these photos is that uh, we end up, or videos, is that we end up knowing that most of these Palestinians are civilians, if not all of them, um, that they have no uh, real relationship to resistance groups, and even when you know Israel starts backtracking, she's, they said or claimed that some of these uh, people have links, which is a very wide Uh, name, um, uh, you know, links to Hamas, links to Islamic Jihad, this is a very loose type of definition uh, that they're being put forward. And the only videos we got from interrogations were from people who have served somewhat in the civil arm of the Palestinian governance apparatus in the Gaza Strip and have no real concrete affiliation, at least organizationally to Hamas or Islamic Jihad, or any of the other groups. And I think it also tells us something about what's happening on the ground in, in the sense that uh, Israel wants these images of surrender but cannot really actually uh, achieve them. Uh, in all the clashes that are happening with the resistance groups, um, even when there's a clash that goes against Palestinian resistance groups, um, the fighters are uh, you know, martyred and, and killed, and they're not surrendering in any way, uh, shape, or form. So I think, in in many ways, there's also this yearning uh, to see these uh, the surrender of of Palestinian fighters, a redemption of Israeli power in the Gaza Strip, and it in, in, in what we're looking at operationally with you know the killing of uh, and injuring of hundreds of soldiers and the killing of tens of soldiers, specifically in the past two days when we learned that you know the Golani Brigade suffered a, a heavy loss, that what's happening on the ground tells us a different story about the current fight unfolding in the Gaza Strip, where much of the commanders of the Israeli army, specifically those even anointed to be replacements for the current elite military base in Israel, are being killed or injured and are being drained from the battle space in the Gaza Strip at this moment from those fighters that supposedly you know, surrender en masse. Um, uh, which turned out to be a complete false flag, uh, propaganda story. Yeah,
4: um, I'm bored listening to you, uh, particularly talking about the uh, desire of Isra- Israel to humiliate Palestinians and particularly humili- humiliate Palestinian men by stripping them naked and uh, putting on this public display of, dominance and humiliation, I'm reminded very much of what happened now almost 20 years ago during the US-led aggression and invasion on Iraq, when after the United States invaded, we saw the horrifying scenes of torture and uh, abuse at Abu Ghraib and other places uh, where Iraqi men were stripped naked by American forces, the same American government that is sponsoring this genocide now in Gaza, um, and also stripping them naked in this way. And at the time, we learned that this was a deliberate strategy that was inspired by this racist book called The Arab Mind, written by this Hungarian-born uh, so-called cultural anthropologist Raphael Patay, who later took Israeli citizenship, and who wrote this vile uh, racist book claiming that Arab men are obsessed with, uh, uh, with sex, and yet at the same time they're ashamed of it, and so the way to break Arab men is through sexual humiliation. And they were using this racist book really as an operations manual, Uh, in Iraq. Um, So my question, so clearly those are old racist and colonial tropes that that are not just unique to Iraq or Israel. But do you think this is a deliberate strategy on the part of Israel the same way it was with the Americans when they uh, invoked this racist uh, and bogus doctrine of Rafael Patay?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's completely, um, you know, it's completely targeted or at least it, it, it tends to target Palestinian uh, imaginary of, you know, shaming us, of attempting, you know, a, a you know, it's, it's, it's very deliberate. It's a symbolic message to Palestinian society, first and foremost, uh, before anybody else uh, in terms of rendering these men uh, mostly naked and parading them in, in this way. And I think it does harken back to this kind of orientalist racist uh, policies that you're mentioning, whether in Iraq or even with other racist and fascist regimes. You know, historically, that that has been, you know, a policy that was used by many such regimes that you know think um, um, you know the naked body is something that could be a source of either shame, and specifically when it comes to Arab men, you know, then there's the whole orientalist aspect that comes into play. Um, an inaccurate, I mean we don't need to respond to this orientalist trope but I think yeah it's a deliberate policy meant to humiliate the Palestinian men and and a symbolic message to Palestinian society more, uh,
4: more and about. and what what impact i mean you're you're in uh you're in in palestine and what impact are these images having uh, what what reaction do they get
3: i mean the thing is that um i think at this critical juncture uh ali most people see this as a desperate attempt by Israel to showcase some sort of success. So they actually see it as Israeli weakness and not an Israeli strength. Uh, it's not really, uh, you know, uh, making people afraid or in, in any way or uh, shape or form. In fact, it, you, you can say that it's, um, you know, it exposes Israeli power itself. That you're so um, um, hasty in terms of your propaganda videos. You're so uh, deliberate in terms of attempting this form of humiliation that you can see through it. And I think most people, um, although they're very sympathetic to the people in the videos and, um, you know, empathetic to their situation and, and predicament at that moment being rendered, you know, forced to perform these uh, acts of being humiliated or handing a weapon or, you know, in front of camera. But I think in, in many ways, most Palestinians see it as, as a sign of uh, of Israeli weakness, not as a sign of Israeli strength, because in, at least at this moment, Palestinians look at this and they say they can't get to the resistance, so they're attempting this form of, uh, you know, uh, lousy propaganda. Um, so, in fact, you know, Israel became, uh, you know, through these videos, even a, a, a an object of ridicule for most Palestinians. It's, it's not, uh, you know, It's not something that is coming across in any way or shape or form as something frightening or something of... And and I want to do, you know, say that this is not new in Palestinian, uh, you know, uh, experience with the Israelis. Um, Whether it's in interrogation rooms uh, where things are not filmed or whether it's in uh, the Second Intifada or otherwise, uh, people have been undressed in different ways, sexually abused, uh, you know sexual humiliation and you know harassment has been used as a deliberate policy in 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 torture chambers uh within Israel for a long time so I think that for Palestinians that experience is also part of our historical experience of dealing with uh, this racist occupation um, that has persisted over Palestinian land so it's nothing new as well um, that's why I and, think
4: we should we, we should say just to, just related to this that many of the young palestinians and older palestinians who came out of uh, the prisons uh, thanks to the deal forced on israel by the resistance during the truce also said that uh, they were frequently explicitly threatened with sexual abuse and rape by the israeli uh, jailers, and that's something that that, uh, Palestinians detained by Israel have reported for years, and in some cases there have been documented uh, sexual assaults, so this is a systematic uh, policy in a way, uh, or a continuum of policies that that aim to try to uh, degrade and humiliate Palestinians.
5: And also, Ali, just it, it was obviously a campaign because the first videos that came out, um, the IDF immediately commented on them and called them, described them as leaked videos. Um, and they immediately, the IDF said, their spokesperson said that that these, the first batch of arrests that we saw, they said directly that they came out of a tunnel complaining about SINWAR. So they they actually had more than just the photo op part they had a, 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 an additional part where they described that these fighters came out talking about Sinwar as if they were getting some kind of actionable intelligence. They've definitely backed off on that, but that first, those first videos that we saw, the one that was staged with the, they made the same man walk twice with his gun, and then they called those videos leaked, the IDF immediately used those. And so it, it's clearly part of a campaign. Um, because there wouldn't be time for the IDF to to digest that information about a leaked video that clearly isn't leaked. It's coming from their soldiers. So just to throw that yeah. in there,
0: yeah, John, actually, uh, let's bring you in and and have you talk a little bit more about that. Um, how how exactly, like what are the mechanisms uh, that Israel is using here, you know, in their attempt to substitute an image of victory? for the Israeli army. I, I know that Abdel Jawad touched on it a little bit, but but what are your thoughts on that?
5: Yeah, well, the, the I mean, this the, it, it's part of a multi-pronged strategy, and one of the other elements of that strategy has been to um to in, to exaggerate their successes um and to downgrade um or, or completely censor their failures. And so We've been following on this show for two months about the situation about Israeli casualties and we've been saying, we've been careful about it because we don't want to speculate, um, but we've been saying carefully that the the videos that we've been watching clearly don't match to the injury reports. Um, And I've been doing that since the beginning of this war, attempting to figure out which Kassam field report matches to which Israeli soldier uh, was killed and that was impossible. And Israel did that as part of a campaign um, to hide their information. And they're able to do that because they have a military sensor. And so every uh, story published in Israel is put through the IDF sensor. So it doesn't get published until the IDF says it's okay. And the IDF didn't say it was okay. And so for the first two months of the war, um, nobody in Israel talked about that. Uh, probably in part because it was censored if you did talk about it. But this past week, we've seen uh, reporting by Haaretz, uh Israel's leading liberal um, daily where it where you could tell by the way that they're reporting that they were pushing the IDF's hand um, to start properly reporting casualties. For people who haven't followed along, the IDF has not released any tallies. They don't have any, they never say, 75 soldiers have been killed in the ground invasion. They never say a number of injured, um, injured and deaths combined as casualties. So they've been systematically covering up uh, those numbers. But because they're covering it up, we haven't, we weren't able to see um, how that process was working. But now we do, because this week, Haaretz um, apparently pushed um, the IDF um, to to release this, uh, the casualty information. And in the process of releasing this casualty information, Haaretz wrote this story um, that talked about how in every single hospital in Israel, there's a 24-7 IDF monitoring of the hospital communications to ensure that no information was released. And this goes not just for numbers of injured, but anything that was considered to be suggestive of that. So for example, they weren't reporting how many helicopters landed on their roof um, because that kind of information would be suggestive of the type of injuries and the number of injuries that are coming. So before this week, we had no information on that. On Yom Kippur, which is an annual tradition in Israel, um, the defense ministry celebrates everyone who's died in wars um, defending Israel. And they put out the number back at the beginning. That was like late November. They put the number out at 2,000 people, 2,000 soldiers had been injured um, since October 7th. And so Haaretz, um, in before that, num- at, that number was not acknowledged by the IDF. The spokesperson was not giving that as a number. And we know that um, the number that they were uh, of, of injured just from October 7th, Because a lot of people have been trying to find out what the casualty rate is for the ground war because Israel has covered up the ground war casualty rate Um, and so Haaretz pushed this and in in doing so they revealed a number of things that have been going on behind the scenes that we didn't hear about namely that doctors in these hospitals in Israel were starting to push back against this censorship because they had very stringent restrictions on what they were allowed to say, Um, and these doctors were upset about it um, because they believed that they're heroes, that the soldiers are heroes, that they're heroes for healing the soldiers, and they wanted to be part of this kind of national... Um, discussion about um, this war that everybody's um, involved with in Israel right 350,000 troops called up Um, the hospitals play a significant part in this they believe and they want to tell the story of these injured soldiers and until what are we 14 December uh, until 12 December from a war that started in October they systematically covered up those numbers And even still, the number that they released um, that we saw just from that headline, they released a number around 1,500 that have been been injured since October 7th. So that includes October 7th. Um, But the second half of that headline you see there, but hospital data is much higher. So in the push that Haaretz was doing to get the IDF to release the information, Haaretz went around to each hospital in Israel and each hospital categorizes soldier uh injuries. That's part of the process that they've done for the state of Israel since the beginning. This is all new for this war. Previously there was tallies. I mean, normally in any wire story, that the tally of the of fatalities is something that would be included in every um, in every wire story, right? At the bottom, this many Palestinians have been killed, this many Israelis have been killed. Um, but that had not happened um, uh, until this week. And so Haaretz um, got the data from the hospitals um, themselves. And if you see the numbers just from those hospitals, um, Ashkelon alone, which is the closest hospital to the Gaza Strip, according to Haaretz, this is as of last week's data, according to Haaretz, Ashkelon alone has 1,900 and 49 casualties. So 500 more than the IDF says total, because now the IDF is acknowledging a number. But even that number that they're reporting is a fraction of the number that the hospital data shows um, at each of these hospitals. Let me give you a couple more examples. Beersheva, which is the second closest hospital, it's a 1,000 itself. So just those two hospitals right there are double the number that the IDF is claiming, and then there's those aren't you know then there's the Tel Aviv hospitals where people who are seriously injured go to, um, and those numbers are 700. So just from those three examples, and then there's dozens of hospitals all over Israel that have casualties in them as well. So we see on the one hand, um, you know, using sexual violence uh, as a tool to to rob masculinity on the one hand to paint a picture of victory. And then on the other hand, you're hiding your stories of what's happening to your soldiers. And that's that has been percolating um, just under the surface in Israel. Um, I was listening to the IDF spokesperson doing a Twitter space the other day, and somebody phoned into the Twitter space and said to him, straight up, why are you covering up? He said "His his uh, he was the uncle of a, a soldier who fought, a captain who fought. Um, and, and he didn't understand why Israel wasn't telling the truth about their casualties, um, with the idea being that you're not telling stories of heroes. You're not creating an image of victory. You're not creating something that we can take back to our people that describes a sacrifice that was made um, for this devastating defeat that happened on October 7th, that's put the their a lot of core beliefs of their country into question. Um, and people, some people in Israel believed that that should be part of the fight back to what happened on October 7th, that you celebrate your heroes. So this is the first week of the war, um, now seven weeks in, that this has happened. And you can see it happening in a structural way. Um, the chief of staff, Halevi, he went to the rehab hospital yesterday and did a photo op with injured soldiers. Nobody has talked about injured soldiers in the IDF for this whole war. Um, and he went and did um, this campaign. <clears throat> we'll probably talk about it more later in the show when we talk about shuja'iyah But um, as Abdul Jawad said, that Golani um, unit that got hit in shuja'iyah the other day they came out and described in detail what happened to their fighters. That's the first time, that hasn't happened. And so what we've seen, and we talked about it a couple shows ago, it does seem though that Israel came out of the pause, out of the fighting pause, and got basically feedback from their focus groups on what has to be done to build an image of victory that allows you to withdraw from this war Um, with some semblance of at least operational legitimacy, because we know they've lost moral legitimacy. Um, And so they they want to have some kind of symbol of victory. And for the Israelis, because they don't have the operational or moral uh, legitimacy to fall back on, their principal warfighting strategy is to stay alive. Um, and we've seen that in every, in part of the, the brutality of the massacres in the Gaza Strip is cowardice. It's cowardice of their soldiers who don't want to go and risk themselves. Um, and so Israel believes that the, um, and you can see it by this whole story, that they believe operational success is synonymous with low casualties, which is, um, you know, completely separate from the concept of uh, defeating a guerrilla group that's embedded under the ground with tens of thousands of fighters who you are very clearly not going to fight under the ground. Um, And so we're seeing it and we see with the mass arrests, we see it with the hiding the casualties and we've seen it even with their propaganda videos. Um, We we mock their videos and we will again. later in the show but their videos have improved significantly over the last week um, we saw our first Palestinian in a video seven weeks into the war um, and so they they and they're telling these stories um, because they never had a, a video to send to their people um, like The Times of Israel reporter um, who just repeats um, IDF uh, numbers at, at, and stats, he, he said this is the most badass video that Israel has published through the war. So it's, it's very obvious that they're attempting um, to, ahead of time, sort of deal with some of the questions uh, that we've asked on this show the whole time. Um, and according to the Haaretz report, even they're admitting to their casualties, uh, they're admitting to like 15 percent of the casualties which I think matches the videos and we're gonna watch more jelly beans later in the show and I think you'll see that um, it's simply impossible that what was happening on the ground matched Israel um, releasing the way that they released their casualties was individually one name at a time they never said eight in this event ten in this event five in this event they didn't tell us where it happened all that stuff is changing a little bit. They're starting to try to, to, to turn their heroes, uh, their soldiers into heroes, um, emasculate the Palestinians and throw them in trucks so that people can meme them. Um, and then they send out these on their uh, WhatsApp groups and social media channels
6: um, Oops, that
5: act yeah. almost more than news, right? The people watch these social media channels, especially since October 7th the social media channels are far more valuable for information for Israelis, um, which was the case on October 7th, than any news media. The media is weeks behind what's going on on social media. And
4: that's true, I think, also in the West with the mainstream media that uh, most of us have access to. Uh, We're going to talk about another story in a bit that they're not covering at all, Uh, that is even now the Israeli media is catching up with. But, John, I guess the question I have for you is, so now I've also seen, there's actually at least two videos in which Palestinians who were almost certainly fighters appear, uh, aside from the videos of the professors and journalists and just hapless uh, men that they abducted from UN shelters and then... Uh, subjected to this humiliating treatment for these photo ops. But my question for you, John, is who do you think these videos are aimed at? Because we do know that, uh, of course, on the one hand, we always have to be cautious in saying social media doesn't define the world. There is a world outside of social media. But at the same time, clearly, social media has a huge impact on perception, particularly when you look at younger demographics in the united states and around the world and we see it's in the younger demographics where the support for palestinians and the opposition to israel is is so high a far 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 huge majority support for palestinians so social media is important now from what i've seen and then again, this is just my perspective, but I look at a lot of things, obviously. These videos of the so-called surrenders, the fake surrender videos that Israel has been producing, are getting no traction whatsoever outside of the narrow demographic of people who already support Israel. Whereas the videos that we're going to talk about and that we have been talking about over the last few months, two months, from the Palestinian resistance, seem to get, seem to be gaining more and more traction beyond just people who already know about or support Palestinians. Is that? Do you share that perception, or what? what what's your view of it? I'd love to hear from uh, Abud about this as well.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think straight up that people watched those videos of the Palestinians being fearless, uh, defending their communities, and people called them heroes. And Israel didn't have anything to counter that with. Um, all they, I mean, I see it in our comments that you know we don't have any proof that uh, these armored vehicles are being pierced by these. Uh, <laughs> yassines or whatever. We we do have a lot of evidence that they're being um, pierced. But even just to be able to counter that kind of propaganda with your own heroes, tell the stories about your own fighters, um, because October 7th is going to be studied in your country for the next, well, however many uh, years your country lasts. Um, People are going to be talking about that. So you want to be crafting uh, 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 you want some heroes in this story um, beyond the helicopter pilots who shot at, uh, you know, the kids on their way back to Gaza or what what have you. Um, Israel needed to show something beyond just their, you know, their civilians wearing military uniforms being their spokesperson. So I, I think that there was a about- pressure in their focus groups to make heroes. Somebody is there zero heroes like? um, When you're watching the Palestinian videos, and you can clearly see on social media, you can see again for the Palestinians a lot of people that support the Palestinians think those videos are amazing, but you can tell that a lot of people that are kind of uh, that that aren't wouldn't say I'm a supporter. uh, You know, before October seventh, are watching these videos and just saying like, "My God, these these are unbelievable." what we're witnessing from a helmet cam, you know, whatever the opposite of staged is, is what those Palestinian videos are. And I think that their focus groups would have shown them that, 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 that Kassam is winning the media war over this state that essentially crafted itself as the like perfect media, um, you know, activist that, you know, they, they set up these whole, um, The departments of foreign Hasbara departments that are just dedicated to attacking college campuses um, because they know they're losing, um, you know, these whole demographics of people that I think their focus groups told them, like, humiliate some Palestinians and show some heroes because it looks to us like you're just killing civilians, which is what it looks like to the whole world.
0: Abdel Jawad, uh, I want to know your thoughts on on this like propaganda war and and how you're how you're seeing this all play out
3: I mean it's uh, it's very simple, I think when it comes to the Palestinians because it's you know you have truth on your side. you don't have to engage in a lot of curation of your story no you don't have to engage in a lot of um, censorship or Editing. I mean, it doesn't doesn't mean that there's no like conscious sometimes propaganda here or there, but what it means is that you know you can you, you you can you can present yourself and frame yourself authentically, and that also comes across with Al Qassam videos and other um, military groups videos, where you see um, these fighters, um, you know uh wearing slippers um, engaging in armed combat with armored vehicles that each cost you know million of dollars um using simple means and much of these means are manufactured within Gaza itself uh through the prowess of, uh, uh, of the engineering minds of the resistance itself to create whatever tools um you know that can be used in the fighting against one of the most advanced militaries so i think that you know you have you're the underdog. You're 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 heroic in terms of your your belief in your your own in what you're doing and, and why you're fighting. And what is for me quite bizarre about Israeli propaganda is that it comes in this moment um, on October seventh, where you Israelis feel a lot of uh, injury um, to their national project, a moral injury as well that uh, befallen on them, and you have all all the mechanisms of creating, let's say, an authentic heroic story of triumph over, um, you know, uh, Palestinian resistance, etc. But despite that, you're still very, very sensitive to the shock that could happen within Israeli society for um, any casualty rate that that Israeli society will not tolerate. Um, and, and this is one of the, the, the paradoxes of how Israel is dealing with its propaganda. On the one hand, he cannot really reach and touch the Palestinian fighters except through air power, and in very few cases we did receive very close combat in these in, in these videos. And I think John, you know, will probably show us uh, later on that only a couple of these videos perhaps show some sort of actual fighting between Hamas fighters or Palestinian resistance fighters and Israeli troops, you know, in close combat. And in, in in many of these instances, you also see kind of um, you know uh, when they're they're clashing, we don't necessarily see Israelis triumphing all the time. No, um, you know it's 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 one of these elements where I think Israel is uh, because it's too curated, because it's too edited, because it thinks over its propaganda too much. It ends up producing one of the worst uh, information wars that we have seen since a while i mean it does it does in a way help it um, on on some grounds maybe it protects you know it, the the unity within its own society maybe that's what's important about you know expanding the temporal horizon of the war and that's their priority maybe that's that's their thinking, but at least in terms of uh, information warfare in terms of the media war in terms of p r in terms of uh, it's ability to attract supporters in terms of its ability to explain what it's doing. I think it's failing on all fronts. And not only that, it's losing all more grounds, as you guys have covered for the past two months or so. And at the same time, um, you know, providing a fertile ground for Palestinians to speak their stories for now more ears that are willing to listen.
0: Well, Ali, I know uh, that we uh, also wanted to highlight um, a story that Asa, you wrote, and, and we published a few days ago, uh, that, that kind of, you know, it it uh, it's accumulation of everything that we've been talking about so far. Um, yeah, Ali, uh, I know you wanted to say a few words.
4: Yeah, uh, if we can put this up. Uh, Asa can talk about this story. Asa, why don't you... Uh just introduced this, Uh, this is the story you wrote uh, just uh, the other day, but it's an important
6: update. Yeah, so you can see the headline there on screen, Israel admits to, quote, immense amount of what it calls friendly fire on the 7th of October. This is a short story I did just about uh, the admission in Ynet by the military correspondent of Ynet, Yarav um, Zitoun, who wrote just that. He wrote that um, that according to well, let me get the exact quote up on screen. it's...
4: Uh, it, yeah, well, while you while you do that, while you look for that quote, Asa, I'll also comment that that for us they. Most important part of the story written by you of was sort of buried in the second-to-last paragraph, and it wasn't the headline. We'll, we'll come. To, I want to talk about what the headline of the story was. But for us, the most important news in this story was buried in that penultimate paragraph.
6: Right, exactly. And uh, unlike a lot of other of these stories about the 7th of October, that have come out in the Israeli press. This one was translated into English, um, and the, the story in general was about how, since the uh, Israeli incursion into the Gaza Strip, um, they—I mean, you know—we we talked about casualties earlier in the, the stream, but uh, you know, they—they—they they, they say that a certain number. I, what is it now, John? What, what are they saying in, now? It's yeah. hundred dead, is it?
4: Right. At the time of the story, it was 105, I think. Now they're admitting to, I think, as of this morning, 116. But yeah. what you what? That's you're not out-
6: including October 7th. That's just the yeah. film. But
4: story. Asa, I don't know if you have that quote from your yeah. Abdi but I think we should actually read it because it's uh, it's so telling, especially the way that it's buried. Or I, I have it up here, I think. Um, yeah, I got it too.
6: Okay, yeah. So the, the article is about, that is about how friendly fire has been happening, so-called friendly fire has been happening in the Gaza Strip. Basically, soldiers have been accidentally shooting each other while while invading the Gaza Strip. But then, at the end of this article, in the penultimate paragraph, it says this, Casualties fell as a result of friendly fire on October 7, but the IDF, the so-called, uh, you know, Israeli Defence Force, the Israeli military, believes that beyond the operational investigations of the events, it would not be morally sound to investigate these incidents due to the immense and complex quantity of them that took place in the Kibbutzim and southern Israeli communities due to the challenging situations the soldiers were in at the time." End of quote. So this is a huge admission, buried really towards the end of this article, You know, we have the military correspondent of one of Israel's most um, important uh, mainstream media outlets saying that the Israeli military believes that um, there was an immense and complex quantity of so-called friendly fire incidents uh, in the Kibbutzim and in um, the southern Israeli communities. And this is exactly what we've been talking about.
4: That's what we've been saying all along. From the very beginning, and we were reporting it. Of course, we had the uh, the the testimony of Yasmin Parat, who survived the massacre at Kibbutz Beeri, uh, and in the last couple of days, the other woman, the other Israeli woman who survived that massacre, Hadass Dagan, has also spoken for the first time to Israeli media, and she confirmed what. Yasmin Porat said that basically it was the tank shells that killed all uh, the Israelis, including the little girl you see on the on the screen right now, uh, Liel Hatsroni. Uh, so this is now we have this admission, but we have something else. Tamara, I'm going to ask if you can put uh, this up on the screen. Us. I've just sent you this this tweet I did, but it contains the images that I, I want to show exactly. So this uh, op-ed appeared in Haaretz yesterday in the English edition and in the Hebrew edition. And it says, and that photo there is actually from Kibbutz Beri. And what we've been saying all along is that Kibbutz Beri The images that show all these devastated and demolished houses are clearly the result of tank shelling, not the small arms that Hamas fighters were carrying. And as Yasmin Parat testified from the very beginning, the Hamas fighters, in her words, treated the Israelis in the kibbutz humanely. That was her her word, often Anushi in Hebrew, in a humane manner. And... What now this, this article in Haaretz is calling for is, say, is saying, did Israel implement the so-called Hannibal Directive, which allows the military to endanger a soldier to prevent them from being kidnapped at the hostage-taking incident in Be'eri on October 7th? And Tamara, I don't know if we're able to show the other image or quote from this article, because the, the writer of this article, says, asks directly, did Israel, here here we go, we must determine exactly what happened that day, that day being October 7th. Was there a decision to eliminate the terrorists, even if there was a significant risk that the hostages would also be killed? Was the Hannibal Directive applied to civilians? And she's not just saying, the author of this article is not just saying, that Israeli civilians may have been killed accidentally as a result of indiscriminate fire, she's going further and asking, was the Hannibal Directive applied? In other words, was there a decision to open fire knowing that Israeli civilians would be killed? And of course, Asa, you'll recall the, the, the previous story you you did just a few days ago about how An Israeli colonel admitted in uh, Haaretz's podcast that, to use his term, a mass Hannibal was applied on October 7th. And this, in fact, lines up with the evidence, which is the hundreds of burned bodies, incinerated bodies, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of incinerated cars, civilian cars, The footage we saw and we reported on over the last few weeks from Israeli helicopters of of the Apache helicopters just strafing civilians uh, indiscriminately, Um, and of course the tank shelling against the houses and the witness testimonies. All of that lines up, that, that physical evidence lines up with what Israelis themselves are saying and have been saying. What it doesn't line up with is the idea that the Hamas fighters did all that, because how were they going to do all that with their AK-47s, maybe some hand grenades, maybe the odd RPG, but nothing like the type of weapons that...
6: Not artillery to flatten a household. Absolutely,
4: or to incinerate literally hundreds of cars, highways of death uh, that that, uh, could only have been done by the kind of weapons Israel possesses. Now, just to go back for a moment to the story that uh, you reported on most recently, Asa, the one we uh, just showed a moment ago, this story, the headline of your Abzitun story, again, this is in Ynet, one of the main publications in Israel, is that one in five of the soldiers that Israel admits were killed in uh, Gaza since the ground operation began. So now we're not talking about October 7th. We're talking about the ground invasion of Gaza, which began in, what, mid to late October, after two, around two weeks or so after October 7th. So they're saying, according to the figures they're admitting to, as John has already told us, these figures are probably... Uh, almost certainly a a huge undercount. But they're saying, the Israelis are saying, 20% of our soldiers were killed by our soldiers. And this is in the context of a commanded and controlled military operation where presumably the Israelis believe that they are taking the initiative and they're on the offensive, and they're still killing one in five of their own soldiers. Yeah. What would be the case on October 7th when we know that the Gaza division, the southern command, completely collapsed, there was no command and control, according to the helicopter pilots and the accounts they've given in the Israeli press, they, were, they, they had no one giving them orders, they were just told, go up in your helicopter and shoot at anything that moves. Shoot at everything was the order. I'm quoting. And
6: some of the tanks just arrived by themselves.
4: And so some just, of the yeah. tanks arrived by themselves. We had those two. Uh, you know, again, going back to what John said, uh, the the um, the uh, in an effort to create heroes, the, a couple of weeks ago the Israelis put forward in the media these three young women who were driving around on October 7th in a tank. And the Israeli spin was, you know, look at this girl power, look at these girl bosses driving a tank and uh, killing terrorists. But what they actually said in the interview on Channel 12 was really disturbing to anyone who is just not completely brainwashed by the Israelis, which is that we didn't. we were driving around in the tank, no one was giving us orders, We were firing weapons we weren't trained to use and never used before. And when we did encounter someone, uh, she recounts that one of the kibbutz says, a man told her, I think it was an officer or a kibbutz kibbutz security guard, shoot at that house. And she said, "Uh, who's in it? Is it terrorists? Is it civilians? And he said, I don't know. Just shoot anyway. So. If it's 20% friendly fire, yeah, there we go. That's, that's it. They put it out as this great uh, 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 example of heroics. But it was really an example of how completely chaotic it was. So 20% when they have strict co- command and control. John, is my interpretation correct to think that if they're killing one in five of their own soldiers when they're in control... The number of their own people that they would be killing in a chaotic situation of total collapse on October 7 may well be considerably higher than that.
5: Yeah, I mean, there's no question. And I think there's going to be investigations in Israel into all of this. And that's part of the reason why they're lying is so um, it's going to end up becoming a catastrophe for their uh, for their image when this stuff well, if it comes out, I mean, I don't know what the way the the media in the West works. But, I mean, I think people, a lot of people would be surprised to hear that only one baby, one infant was killed on October 7th. I, I think people think, uh, have been told for all this time, these numbers um, that are completely, both the Israeli numbers, um, all the numbers are just mangled um, in such a way that, um, it's just propaganda piled on top of propaganda. And even even that Friendly Fire story, um, you, they said that some of those people killed in Friendly Fire were killed by shrapnel in their controlled demolitions. So those propaganda videos, like uh, in Nora's opening... Uh, where we, so, you know, they show blowing up the Palestinian Legislative Council, like Palestinian Parliament, or blowing up a United Nations school, and and the soldiers are all lying on the berm, hiding, watching, filming with their cameras, and then cheering. Um, people died in those. So that that's not a good way to go. If you're trying to create a hero and you're lying with your camera, phone, uh, camera, phone, recording a, a a completely unnecessary, like not from a bomb, they're actually wiring these buildings and then moving back and exploding the buildings and then killing their troops in that explosion. It's it's the level of absurdity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think twenty percent sounds really high. I think that. I mean, If we're going to speculate on it, I think what's going to happen is that the Israeli casualty count is going to go up considerably. It looked bad previously if they said 10 in a day, but now that they're reporting 10 every day, I think it's going to be easier for them to slip in the extra ones and to get that number up because there's no way that 20% of what we've seen on camera of Israeli casualties is by their own forces, thereby lowering the number. That have been killed by Palestinians, which is this kind of weird thing that Israel does as if um if you kill your own people, it proves that the resistance isn't as strong as they as they thought it was when really, and as we're going to show you in the next hour, um you're killing each other because you're idiots and brutal at what you're doing yeah. and of course
0: uh, yeah, indiscriminate exactly and indiscriminate, and, and, yeah, and as tomorrow reported uh in the a piece that she published this morning, um, the Israelis have also admitted to friendly fire injuries in the raid in Janine over the past three days. Um, so before we go to our next hour in which we are going to show um, many jelly beans as we're calling them, um, uh, John, I wanted to ask you about the other kind of, you know, symbolic kind of you know, Hasbara propaganda show of the flooding of the tunnels, which we covered uh, last week, um, where the Israelis, you know, were were showing these images of, um, you know, guiding a giant hose from the from the Mediterranean Sea into some, uh, uh, you know, supposed opening of a tunnel on the beach um and they were you know uh, talking about how this is their plan now and they're going to flood the tunnels and they're going to you know eliminate all the fighters inside um what can you say about what we know more about that
5: well was it that story was almost uh two weeks ago and so and now they're saying oh. th- these are uh, american sources that we're getting from this the israelis aren't talking about this so it was american sources saying that um the israelis have begun this process that they said they had begun two weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, and one of the the good things to throw into this story when Ali was talking about the logistics is that they the Israelis said they had five pumps uh, north of Shati on the on the Mediterranean coast, and this Wall Street Journal article they re up this Wall Street Journal article, and they say that adding two additional pumps is why they started. So so from five to seven pumps and the story is framed around adding these two extra pumps. So now we got the two extras where we don't have five, we got seven. Now we're going to flood a 500-kilometer tunnel network that has drainage, is uh, uh, an incredible uh, feat of engineering that clearly they didn't forget about drainage. Anyone who's been in Gaza in the winter knows that drainage is a very significant issue. The place floods considerably the sand alone um, is a problem for collapsing. So um, this is, again, this is just part of one of the pillars um, of creating an end game because there's no, you've had all these people saying, you know, to Hamas's tunnels, Hamas's tunnels. So what's Israel going to do if they haven't found any, they don't even have an idea where their prisoners are being held, not even a faint clue. The, the prisoners who got out, talked about that, that they got bombed on the way into Gaza. And then as soon as they got into the tunnels, it seemed like Israel was bombing the tunnels that they were in. Um, so they have no idea. And this is just, uh, I'll keep this short, but this is just another part of, the, uh, of this propaganda campaign to, to craft an image of not even victory, but just like bare minimum success. Yeah
4: I'll just add quickly to this John that this Wall Street Journal story which is pitched as an exclusive and you know probably organized by the Israelis or whoever is doing PR for them but even that story expresses doubt about the possibility of flooding the tunnels they say that you know there's hundreds of kilometers of them they're not all connected maybe you could get a few of them and for me, the real giveaway is that it says that the Israelis, the Israeli authorities believe that some of their uh, uh, prisoners of war are held in the tunnels. And in my estimation, they're mo- most like, you know, who are the, who are the prisoners left? It's the high, high value military prisoners and officers. And those are the ones that they're going to want to protect. I mean, I I think that the resistance tried to protect everyone as best as they could, but they're definitely going to want to protect those uh, POWs. And so they they may well, well be in the tunnels. And so there's two possibilities. Either Israel wants to flood the tunnels and kill its own people who may well be held there. Israel says it believes they're held in the tunnels. That's possibility number one. Possibility number two is Israel knows that it can't really flood the tunnels, and so nothing will actually happen to its POWs who are, who are, who are down there.
5: The IDF experts themselves don't say. So Foreign Affairs, you know, uh, what, Foreign Affairs magazine, like what Chomsky calls impeccable establishment credentials, they ran an article by the IDF's uh, leading tunnels expert. In the IDF, um, just uh, in the early stages of the war, you know, like a 3,000-word article, it doesn't say seawater, it doesn't say flood anywhere in the piece. They ran, Foreign Affairs ran a piece just the other day with someone about how to defeat Hamas. Nothing about seawater, nothing about flooding. So, just, just, I mean...
0: Grasping at straws. Um... So before we go into our uh, next uh, hour of the program, uh, Ali, I know that you had some um, important news that you wanted to share.
4: Yes. Thank you, Nora. Uh, Just a quick update. I'm very happy to announce that some wonderfully generous uh, supporters have come together and they have pledged to fully match any donation to the Electronic Intifada between now and the end of the year, so up through December 31st, up to a total of $60,000. And this is amazing for us because, as you know, all of the reporting we do is funded by our supporters and readers. We are a completely independent publication, and all of the... Uh, work we do these live streams our podcasts the videos we put out and especially all our reporting that you see on the website is funded by you uh we're kind of like public radio but way way better you don't get any of this from public radio
0: um Uh, underwritten by uh no we don't have uh
4: yeah exactly we don't we, we have you were underwritten by you and um I want to point out, just that for example, I'll give you an example. The story we talked about a few minutes ago, where Haaretz is now calling for an investigation of whether the Hannibal Doctrine was used on October 7th, whether Israel deliberately killed its own civilians. You can read that in the Israeli press. You can read that at the electronic intifada. But you know where you can't read it? The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian. CNN, the BBC, the list goes on. I don't know of a single mainstream publication that covered Yasmin Parat's testimony, that has covered any of of the crucial developments that we have covered from the very beginning. And uh, again, I want to highlight, Tamara, if you can go back to the front page, that every day... We are publishing, and this is what I'm most proud of, reportage from our uh, friends and colleagues in Gaza. You go to the front page of the Electronic Intifada now, we have direct reporting from Gaza that you will not find anywhere else, and we're immensely proud of that. We're immensely proud of the fact that many of the people who are writing these stories Uh, were uh, mentored by our dear friend Rifat al-Ara'ir, trained by him, and we we owe it to him. And and some of what we're publishing now are some of their tributes to Rifat. And uh, we're very, very proud of that. But all of this work we do with your support. So there's two things you can do right now. Um, If you just go back to the front page, Tamara, go to the Electronic Intifada, and you can just hit that Donate Now button and make a donation. And it will be counted. It will be matched dollar for dollar. Uh, And you can also go to get updates and sign up for our email list. You'll not only get important information about our live streams and our latest stories every day. uh, You'll get a newsletter with all our headlines in it once a day. But as soon as this live stream is over, we will send out an email with the details of this matching challenge that you can also share with any friends and family that you think might uh, also want to support this. So please sign up for the email. You don't have to wait for us to send you that email. You can just hit donate now at the website, make a donation. It will be matched. The email we're going to send out will also contain uh, our address. If you're in the United States and you want to send a check instead, then uh, the address will be in that email. So do sign up, do make a donation, and uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for all your support because without you, we can't do this work, and um, we are determined to keep doing it, to keep amplifying uh, our voices, your voices, and uh, it's something we do together. Thank you.
0: It is. Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you to everybody who is keeping this platform vital and strong. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm very grateful. Uh, I know we all are. And uh, so now um, we are going to move into our segment that I know many of you have been waiting for. We're going to talk about jelly beans and other snacks. Um, Let's uh, Yeah, let's uh, let's start with um, with this first video for uh, John, why don't you set it up? Uh, And I want to hear Abdel Jawad's uh, analysis to it afterwards. Uh, This was about a week ago, December 8th um, in Gaza City, uh, what we're calling a jump for joy. Can you can you set this up and and talk about uh, what we're going to be seeing here?
5: Yeah, so this is a Sarayal Kudz video. Um, Again, when we're talking about heroes, you're watching a tank enter the screen, point his barrel at the fighters, who apparently doesn't even flinch. Um, And again, generally, you're seeing in these videos, um, Palestinians using their terrain, using their home neighborhoods, understanding how to move through the rubble um, in a way the Israelis don't. um, And they're able to use um the the both the destruction and the existing infrastructure and there's our guy who became a uh i, I think that 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 image we'll, we'll go to it we we i cut one that's uh, just him so we'll go back to that but <laughs> um again you can see the proximity to the armed force like to the armor um they're positioning themselves to get all of these shots our fighters are positioning themselves to get better shots they're not you know, they're always on foot. In photography, it's called composing with your feet. Instead of zooming in, you get closer. And that's, and that's what we see um, throughout these videos. And so that guy, he, he's, they showed in the earlier clip, they followed him from a separate street. And he hits, he hits the the, uh, Israeli tank and yells, uh, we, we cut the audio to try to help Um, our jelly beans stay online but he yells it's on fire um, and and jumps like basically levitates Um, I don't know Abdul Jawad what what was the reaction to that video in in Palestine I wish that I was watching it with my friends uh, Hmm. when it came out
3: I mean for uh, for every every almost every video is dissected by uh, by people, and you know a lot of the symbolism within it or the words spoken are used in uh, social media content um, and here he says which means it burned up or it 's on fire um that he saw it on fire and I think it it harkens back, I think, and echoes a lot of you know let 's say Palestinian experiences when a stone hits or uh, when uh when when you feel uh your power. An agency, and I think uh, that authentic moment of him jumping, you know, happily that he hit the tank and the tank uh, burned, um, you know, um, just I think is it's part of every Palestinian to like just feel um, his happiness. But I th- because I think that that's that's a moment that you know we've all kind of experienced one way or another uh, that moment where we don't feel disempowered but we feel uh, empowered. So it it, it spread uh, quite heavily. It became a meme. It became a symbol. A lot of people did art around it. Um, You know, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we have uh, plenty more. Uh, Let's go to also the same day on December 8th. This was um, Kassam in Gaza City. Uh, John, what can you tell us about this jelly bean?
5: So this is on the eastern um, um, edge of Gaza City. And again, all of these videos show the same basic thing. The Israelis are not outside of their armored vehicles. Um, Palestinians have apparently an unlimited supply of Gaza-made Yassin warheads. This is an attack tunnel being used. Um, to carry out an operation. So, the tunnel already existed and the Palestinians are using it there to come in behind the Israeli positions, which is why they're not clearing any of this territory. This is a shawaz, uh, a Palestinian-made bomb that they're using, um, they're showing, they're using it against troop positions. Um, inside buildings. Again, you're seeing them walk through walls here. I mean, maybe Abdel Jawad could talk more about this, too. But I remember back in the second Intifada when the Israelis uh, blew holes in walls and walked through them. And like all these postmodern philosophers were like, oh, they walk through walls. They, you know, they transcend the environment. And it was like this whole thing about how brilliant they were. And then we just see Palestinians doing it as a matter of fact. And then this guy, he's breaking out the back fence that's locked. And he's going to run across an open space here. And then watch this. He realizes, oh, there's a massive 2,000-pound bomb crater. So he can't get right up. Because I believe that he would have run right up to it. But you could see his head cam look down at the hole. He stops, takes his breath, steadies himself fires, hits in the soft part of the tank on the side, which Palestinians are trained to do. And then this, to me, is really important. He returns. And Abu Ubaidah talks about this too now. Uh, so that's an attack tunnel that you're seeing there being used. So Abu Ubaidah talks about this too, where he says the fighters returned back home. These are not martyrdom missions. These are fighters carrying out operations and returning to their bases safely afterwards. And I think that's an important thing because we're seeing that on that camera. First of all, this clip right here, the courage to do this, to, to, to run across an open space as a tank unit is moving with drones in the air and to creep, to get a closer shot. The heroism of this, there's just nothing even close to this in Israeli videos. And you don't even need to analyze the video. You can just watch that person with his helmet cam take you into the middle of the fight in Gaza City um, and show a tank being hit. That's not, that's the tank being hit. That's not the burn off of the active uh, reactive armor. That's a hit. Um, Again, and we're looking at a Palestinian homemade, um, a copy, a Palestinian copy of a Soviet weapon that's very effective against armored vehicles. And we're seeing that um, in the field reports that talk about um you know basically an armored vehicle an hour being taken out
0: abdul uh yeah did you did you have anything you wanted to say about this one
5: i mean yeah there's there's also
3: i mean if we notice there's sometimes p o v videos sometimes it's um um it's 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 a squad with multiple persons and then they have uh one who takes you know care of filming um and I think for resistance, it was very important always um, um, to showcase people the power of resistance itself, and that's why such videos always amplified the resistant act um, and by, you know, telling people that the tank is defeatable, that the Israeli soldier is vulnerable. I mean, and Hezbollah was the primary um, uh, and the innovator in this field. Uh, and then it was transferred to many of uh, the Palestinian groups. And I just wanted to also mention something that John was mentioning. You know, the whole notion of walking through the walls, which was, you know, called inverted geometry, where the movement of troops, Israeli troops, would move through Palestinian homes, uh, through holes. I think that, you know, just to to say that that was actually a Palestinian tactic before it became an Israeli uh, tactic um, of movement. It was used in multiple operations, specifically in Hebron in 2001, and then Israeli basically copycatted it and used it more on a wide-scale military movement within the Janine refugee camp and Balata and other places, um, which also tells us something about the history of, of the duality between resistance and the Israeli army in the sense that they both learn from each other, but they also develop their tactics based on how the other um, interacts with them. And I think one of the successes that we see, you know, in terms of the information war happening, um, at least for uh, uh, the Palestinian resistance, the Qassam Brigades, and also uh, saray al-Quds and others, is that um, it's telling Palestinians what an organized force can actually do. Um, and, you know, some of them, you know, there are bits and pieces of, of, of the war, but and they're mostly, as we see, uh, hit squads that operate clandestinely. They they reach their targets and return um, um, to their tunnel, I guess, or wherever they came from. But what it, what it says is that also the type and the nature of, of of the fight that people should not think too much of you know uh, regular defensive positions as as you know as a regular war would be you know like occupying space is not the central here is that what you do with this occupation of space and how do these two um, you know uh, fighting forces interact one with small squads that can do sometimes combined arm maneuvers but or or do some traps like what happened to Shijia the other day and then retreat uh, with little harm and that's what, what what is actually very tough for Israel in this war and what the videos show is that these resistant fighters, as, as John was mentioning, they're not conducting martyrdom operations. they're actually trying to prolong the fighting force itself and attempting uh, a long drawn-out war where they preserve their fighting force and fighting power as much as possible. Of course, of course, many you know would also be uh, killed and martyred through air power and other uh, means that Israeli have, uh, but at the same time, you know, we get a glimpse. Um, to an extensive array of videos, because these videos have to come back and they have to be edited and they have to be released. So all the videos we're getting are actually from squads that make it back and
4: uh, so And, and I've, uh, but one thing I, I want to to point out is uh, what you what you say makes me think. You know, what What we're seeing in the videos in terms of the fighting forces of the Palestinians, I call them the Palestinian Defense Forces, is discipline. Uh, they are disciplined. And you see that both in terms of the individuals, sometimes when you see one person going, as we saw in that video, crossing an open field, the amount of determination and discipline that takes... But when you see them fighting as groups, carrying out joint operations, everyone has their role. They're very disciplined, including the camera person. Sometimes that camera person is the person who's shooting and they're, you know, clearly wearing a camera on their head, but not always. Sometimes it's another person shooting. Sometimes the shot is from a completely different angle, which makes me think that that there is as much thought and training into its media strategy as it does into its fighting and tactical strategy and you see that in in the videos the other thing in contrast to the israelis well i want to say the palestinians are disciplined in contrast to the lack of discipline of the israelis because not only are they putting out these official IDF videos that that John is going to uh, talk us through in a minute, but you also have these the Israeli soldiers themselves putting out videos in these very undisciplined ways. For example, the soldier who um, blew up a mosque and dedicated that to his... Uh, daughter and that just revolted probably that made people very proud in Israel but it just revolted people back home or the video of the Israeli soldier looting a necklace you know saying look at this silver necklace I found or the soldier going through the intimate apparel and belongings of a Palestinian woman in her bedroom who clearly had been forced to flee her home but then mocking her and All of this, they think, look how fantastic we are, but it just disgusts people. And then, of course, there was the video of an Israeli soldier just destroying a toy store for no reason, as if to say, not only are we going to murder all the children, but we're also going to destroy all the toys in Gaza. And you never see that from the Palestinian side. You never see these undisciplined videos from Palestinian fighters or or Palestinian groups, everything they put out uh, is directly to the matter at hand, which is fighting the Israelis. And just to me, that's just such a sharp contrast.
3: <laughs> no, indeed. I mean, I think there are, you know, it's highly disciplined force. I mean, one testament to that is that you had 1,200, I guess, fighters waking up one morning uh, not knowing that they have to go on a mission to break down one of the most complex uh, uh, walls that has ever been built in the history of, uh, of humanity. You know? Um, you know, They just woke up and that day they were given the orders. Um, so it tells you not only how, how disciplined they are, how willing and committed they are and how they can take things uh, to their own hands. And I think this is what we're also seeing in terms of of the videos, in terms of their production, in terms of their release, and also in terms of their impact, whether in the Arab world or Palestinian society, but also perhaps with a wider international uh, audience that is looking at these and, and seeing the, the commitment and determination of the Palestinians to liberate their homeland.
0: Well, we have uh, plenty more to show you. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's go to a clip from December 10th. This is Qassam in Khan Yunis, in the
5: south. Right, so the, the, the fight moves down to Khan Yunis, where the Israelis said that the uh, Palestinians had concentrated their forces. And here we see uh, Israeli soldiers out in the open. We can all count them. There's four there, and this is a fragmentation grenade on the end of this Yasin that he's firing. So he's firing a different weapon than the anti-tank weapon. Um, and you see these soldiers out in the open space, um, and bef- this is before, uh, so the fragmentation grenade doesn't need to hit the troops, it hits the wall behind the troops, and you can see at least five go down there. And so Israel never reports five soldiers uh, hit by a, a frag grenade uh, in Khan Yunis. so it's difficult to... And this is another open troop. So these these are Palestinians that are showing you at least severely wounded um, situations that um, the Israelis themselves weren't. So these videos are available to everyone in Israel. And then the doctors are told that night that they can't report uh, on the the Mm -hmm. civilians. So let's go to the next one. Do we
4: know how much they're circulating in Israel? I mean, surely some Israelis are seeing them on social media, but Israeli television is not playing them. I mean, we we don't really know. I mean, it would be interesting if anyone is watching from um, Israel. uh, So let us know in the comments if these are being seen. It would be very interesting to know.
5: I mean, I know they watch Nasrallah's speech. The soldiers watch Abu Abeda and Nasrallah's speeches. I've seen wire foot, wire yeah. uh, photos where they where they're just over the court, over the shoulder of Israeli soldiers watching. Yeah,
4: yeah and I'd be curious to know if, for example, obviously there's a, a lot, there's a, a huge number of Palestinians in Israel who have their media and their publications, but they're probably carefully monitored by the Shin Bet. But the Palestinians in Israel also consume by default because they have to it's Israeli and Hebrew media and I'd like to know if if any Palestinian Well we have one up or, on the
5: screen there Dusty 48 if is that maybe 48 uh, maybe that's coming from Israel saying no they're not showing any of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's
4: that's interesting. I I suspect they don't. I I know that some Israel because I've been tweeting them with Hebrew captions on Twitter and then You'll get some responses in Hebrew, but, you know,
5: clearly there's some people that see them, but not not the mass public, perhaps. Let's let's show the next one, Tamara. Yeah. This, this one is, this is the Palestinian Air Force. Okay, well, that well that shot there was a, a, a tunnel that we saw. The, let's do the drone one, clip two, Tamara, from Khan Yunus, because this is um, a remarkable thing that the Palestinians have been able to create. Um to be able to use drones to drop um, munitions. And so we see here uh, on the ground, those those are tanks on the ground there, and they're dropping a Yassin warhead from a drone. We can see the Yassin there. And you can see to the right that there's tanks all stacked up, and the drone decides to fly over the troop carrier and drop it on the troop carrier, not on, see there's, you can see to the right of the screen there, it's like Mm. a tank parking lot. That tank has appeared, the troop carriers appeared to move away from them and they've targeted that. So we're seeing in these videos, first of all, we're seeing a Palestinian Air Force um, and that's a fairly remarkable drone to be able to carry um, that warhead, but I'm not a technologist, but I'd be curious to know um, how much more weight they can carry than that, because that's a significant uh, warhead to drop from a drone. Um, but we're seeing in all of these videos, the resistance is choosing its targets. Uh, it, it's not just, you know, grabbing and, and firing, you know, gripping and ripping or whatever the soldiers call it. It's, it's, they're moving in over that armed um, camp and dropping, by the way, a direct hit. So they clearly were training. And we know some of this from the Israeli um, attempts to cover up what happened on October 7th or to to make it seem like they knew what was going to happen, that they talk about all of this open training that was happening in Gaza. And that's clearly the case because whoever is flying that drone is able to position the warhead over the tank from a significant height and hit it. Um, which is not nothing. So yeah. just want to show you. And just
4: as a reminder, John, we saw videos like this on October 7th. Yes. From and this was the, this 7th. was
5: the foundation of October 7th was to break through the wall yes. using drones that yes. took out the automatic systems from that.
4: We, we saw them dropping uh, mm-hmm. munitions from the air on tanks on October 7th and on one of those automated machine gun nests with precise accuracy. And also we've seen them, uh, since the ground invasion began, we've seen them using these airdropped munitions against troops who are are just like camping out in the open and not paying any attention. You know, behind these, they're being in cleared areas and the the Israelis will have dug uh, high sand berms on all sides in order to protect them. But then the drone flies over them and drops the munition from the air. Incredible stuff.
0: Uh, we have more jelly beans, different flavors. Um, let's uh, let's go to uh, the next day, December 11th. This is uh, Saray Al-Quds in east of Gaza City, perhaps Shijia. Um Let's go to that one and see what kind of flavor we got.
5: again, walking through walls, it's called mouse-holing, to get a position in a damaged building. The Israelis have already damaged that building, believing that they'd cleared it, waiting for the armored personnel carrier to pass to hit the weak spot in the back of the door. Um, And this is, again, picking its targets. You can see that it's part of a convoy. Um, I mean, Hezbollah did this in 2006, where they would hit the back, of the convoy and the front of the convoy, and get the middle tank stuck in between the two.
4: What's that red circle pointing out uh, in the video?
5: I think that's just the light on the front of the. Uh, I that's thought
4: a- that was a red circle by whoever made the video. No, I no, think not the that, light. No, no earlier, but I think I don't know if, if we need to replay it from the beginning. But w- we can go through and then maybe
5: start it again. So they're hitting the back doors, which is something that we know that they train to do because when the Israelis raided um, a a Qassam camp in Beit Lahia earlier in the war, they showed an ATAN armored, wheeled armored vehicle model, scale-size model. And the ATAN hadn't even been deployed yet. It was deployed, it was rushed into service on October 7th. Um, But before that, it was not in service. So we know the Palestinians are creating. Yeah, you see.
4: Look, that's that that red circle. Oh, that's a I piece of what, the what is, that's
5: yeah, a piece of the armor. What
4: it's highlight, but they put that red circle on Qassam, who made the yeah, video. Yeah, to show chunks
5: of the vehicle. To show flying.
4: chunks of the vehicle because often the question people ask is, well, how do we know that yeah. that this is actually doing damage? In this video,
5: is showing
4: big chunks. And then in one of their more recent videos, uh, which I think came out yesterday. They actually show pieces of mangled Israeli armor that they walk, you know, that they step on. So, again, that's that's about. It seems to me that they are answering the question that people have,
5: but passing on the bulldozer again. So you see, they they identify the bulldozer. They even flashed it in red to show us that they're going to pass on it, which is what we talked about a couple shows ago from Shujaia where they passed on the bulldozer in order to hit the troop carrier. And they're not hitting the troop carrier from the front, they're waiting for it to pass, to hit it in the back door where it's believed to be weakest. And we know from October 7th that Qassam fighters went into Israel with uh, diagrams that showed, that reminded them, like little um, um, operation cards that showed them where, which vehicle would respond and how long it would take for each vehicle to respond and then where to hit that vehicle. And so that that was the preparation for October 7th. And now it's just being used on a mass scale by these convoys um, of vehicles. I think the next question that we want to know is who's evacuating these? Uh, We don't know the answer to that yet. Um,
0: Yeah, there have been some uh, videos of uh, footage of like, uh, you know, destroyed or very uh, mangled tanks and APCs being kind of dragged to some to some place somewhere.
5: They drag them um, off. And I think the yeah. ones that are really destroyed, if they evacuate them, they blow them up. They don't want the resistance to get a hold of mm-hmm. um, to get a hold of these for propaganda value. So
7: um,
5: again, but you see waiting till it gets and then moving forward, not firing from the safe spot, moving forward, um, and again, a lot of this stuff is learned on the streets. That, I mean, it's that vehicle incredible. can't shoot you when its gun is pointed forward. It takes also, time.
4: Look mm-hmm. at that angle he's shooting from. You see all that mangled metal in front of him. I'd be so terrified to hit something like that and the, and the grenade bounces back on me. I mean, just the level of skill and confidence that shows is unbelievable.
0: Yes. Uh, all right. Let's go to December thirteenth. Yeah, this is, this is yesterday. This is yesterday. in yes. Gaza City. What can we What can we find here?
5: Again, just the the and Abdel Jawad. I want you to jump into when it, when you when you see things. But just the remarkable number of Yassines that we're seeing hmm. that clearly have a stockpile. Um, to fight these important battles months into the war.
3: I mean, I think the Asin was uh, one of the largest investments that the resistance made. You know? like, yeah. it, it, it's, it's sensible, uh, it could be manufactured locally, it replicates Russian weaponry, but at the same time you can have uh, a huge number of...
5: So uh, that soldier's outside the tank there, sorry, I'm destroyed.
3: No, 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 sure,
5: he's outside the tank. So that's a killed in action. This is a soldier in a window. Okay, There's no other way that goes. So those are two exposed soldiers. And this is the Palestinian, this is the resistance using an attack tunnel that clearly has just been dug. So this is not a previously dug tunnel. They're able to add an attack tunnel, then wire the shawaz, which is an explosively formed uh, penetrator, which is an anti-armor weapon, and then re- again withdraw back to safety and remotely detonate it. And there we see pierced armor. This is chunks of armor, and we're about to see coming up here um, captured Israeli gear. Right. So while they're faking photos of the of the of of metal shop workers. Arrested, w- who have been sheltering at a hospital for two months. The Israelis them, are faking yeah, it. Yeah, the Israelis uh, faking it. We, we haven't seen any Palestinian kit in any Israeli videos. They show us rusty guns.
0: Uh, oh, they showed um, like uh, almost like paper mache. You know, uh, they, the the um that that the uh, resistance groups use for like military parades. Yeah, they showed they, us like the fake.
5: <laughs> yeah, they, they showed us parade they showed us parade rockets. Yeah. <laughs> and the Palestinians are showing us gear from their soldiers that were used. Okay, watch this here. You can see his head. They'll freeze it here. You can see he's riding he, he's riding outside of the tank.
0: <laughs> and it's, just, that word, yeah. it's just oh, a quick ahead.
5: clip. And they move on to the next one. It's not and it's recent. <laughs> I mean, there's also... Just just
3: a small note. I mean, you can also see that Israelis, generally speaking, are either in armored vehicles or within, um, you know, uh, built uh, buildings or houses, Palestinian houses. So they're not necessarily moving very freely in terms of open space. They're, generally speaking, trying to take, you know, defensive positions even when they enter... And that's why most of the operations in the videos we see are are this type of interaction
4: mm-hmm. well w- one thing that uh, that I find very striking is that the when when you think about what it takes to put these videos out, just also we're more than two months into the into the genocide, into the genocidal war, and about two months into the ground invasion. Welcome back. And uh, that was a panel
1: discussion uh, from Electronic uh, Intifada on uh, the developments uh, in Palestine. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, We'd like to, of course, thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Uh, Once again, uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program for Saturday, uh, December 16th, 2023, uh, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and uh, that is at the Pan-African Radio Network. And, of course, uh, in the Pan-African Radio Network, just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at pan We're going to close out with the music of the legendary Charlie Parker live in Montreal from 1953, uh, some 70 years ago. This is Abayomi Azikoway, signing off, and have a beautiful
5: week.
6: Well, we have gathered uh, what we consider uh, as good a combination of musicians as we possibly can in order to background the gentleman. I suppose, that most of us consider way up number one top
0: man on Aldo Sax, Charlie Parker.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs)
3: man,
1: they've been waiting. We asked Bird about
0: what he'd like to say. He says, man, I I just don't talk because I want to play How High the Moon, so here it is.